Good morning, everyone. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I find it quite hard to believe that we are approaching the end of uh, this journey of ours right through the Bible in a year. There are 45 weeks down. We have just seven to go. Uh, and over these next seven weeks and six Sundays, we have just three more sections. Here are the total 20 sections of the Bible that we have been sort of journeying through during 2011. And we have only three left. And there they are. They are the obvious birth narratives of Jesus as we think about the living word. And we are going to look at those uh, during the Christmas week. And then at the beginning of December, we are going to spend four services trying to get our heads around one of the most challenging books in the entire Bible, the final one, the book of Revelation. I know that combining studies in the book of Revelation with preparations for Christmas is quite an interesting mix and cocktail, and in fact, I may take a sickie that month. But for the next four essential word uh, services, we're going to concentrate on the apostles' teaching, some fascinating writing and thoughts that have been given to us and left with us by four key leaders in the early church uh, Peter, Paul, James and John. And so tonight we are going to listen to something Peter said about what it means to live the Christian life in a hostile world. So if you feel you're up against it at the moment, uh, maybe tonight might be helpful for you. On Sunday morning the 27th, we're going to consider something that James said about practical Christianity. Practical Christianity. And then that evening, we'll reflect on what John taught about authentic Christianity. But this morning, we're going to focus, or we're going to keep focusing on, because Brian has already been leading our thoughts so helpfully on this. But we're going to focus on something that Paul said via a letter to a group of Christians in a place called Corinth, uh, something like 2,000 years ago, and how we might connect what he said to them then with our situation Today, So, uh, can I invite you to open your Bible at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There are Bibles in the pews, if you don't have one with you. It's page 1160. And it would be very helpful if you could see a copy of God's Word as we work our way through this this morning. Now, one of the very real dilemmas of this series has been that whenever the set text for a single service is particularly long, And this morning, the set text for this service is two entire chapters. Now, I know compared with some other services, that's not that long. But there are actually 39 verses here. And to try to cover those would be impossible and actually stupid. To try to deal with everything in here would not be wise. And so, I'll be honest, I've kind of struggled a bit this week to know what to narrow it down to. To know exactly what to concentrate on so that you're not just swamped with material, but that you would actually have something to go away from here with. Now, to be perfectly honest, if I said nothing else at one level, you've already got lots to go away with in how Brian has led us. But I kind of hope that you'll be able to take something from what, from what I share as well. And so what I've decided to do is highlight a number of the ways that you are described in these chapters. And I'm building on what Brian has been been saying. How you are identified. And what I want to do is draw your attention to five things that Paul says about you. Five things that are true about every single Christian sitting here this morning. Five things that set you apart and that characterize you. 
And as we reflect on what I think are these amazing realities and discoveries, I kind of hope that we'll go away from here with a sense of just how much, if we could see ourselves like this, that it would impact and influence our day-to-day lives, how we actually leave here and live. So here are the five things. Now, the first is a familiar description. We find it in verse 7. We've already been introduced to it, where Paul describes himself and us as jars of clay or chamber pots. And there would have been, and there still is, something very ordinary about this image which is exactly how Paul felt a lot of the time and I have no doubt that there are many people sitting here this morning and you just feel pretty ordinary especially when you look around you compare yourself to other people just feel ordinary these were no highly glazed pieces of pottery that sold for a high price in a specialist shop they were just jars of clay that sat on market stalls People saw them all the time. And alongside this sense of the ordinary that Paul was getting across was this idea of weakness, even insignificance. Clay pots are weak. They are vulnerable. They are fragile. That image that Brian showed was so good. Broken, put back together. And again, you may be sitting here this morning, you just feel weak. Really, really weak. And the reason that Paul felt, I guess, is because he kept messing up. And we know that because on one occasion he described himself as the worst of sinners. And again, there may be some people who want you to describe how you would describe yourself far worse than anybody else here. And Paul also, on another occasion, recognizing that he just kept messing up, said, you know, see all the things I would really love to do, I just don't do them. See all the things I wish I didn't do, I just keep doing them. I'm weak. Really, really weak. But actually... It's not the full description we find here. Look at verse 7. Here's our true identity. Here's the image I want you to take away from this morning. You are treasure-filled jars of clay. And that changes everything. But what exactly is this treasure that every single Christian here this morning possesses and carries with them? Well, to find the answer to that, we've got to go to a couple of the verses that Paul writes beforehand. Look at verse 4. Here's the treasure. It's the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Verse 5, it's the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This treasure that we are privileged to carry around in us as jars of clay is the good news about Jesus. That's what you carry with you. That's what you possess. It's the story of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. This treasure, this extremely valuable commodity, this hope of the world, God's given it to you. God has entrusted you with it. He has put it in you in order that you would then go and share it with others. You see, clay jars were often used as light carriers. And that's what we are. Jesus on one occasion said, I am the light of the world. But he also said on another occasion, you are the light of the world. And the light that you are to transmit is the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. And so as Christians, we carry that around. 
every single day. And we've got to let it shine out of our lives. And the shocking truth is God has got no plan B. This is how God has decided to share his message. Through us. Through us jars of clay. He's counting on us to spread his gospel. Not in order to draw attention to ourselves, but, and I'm quoting the second half of verse 7, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. The source of this light and this gospel is God, but how God communicates it is through you. You're a treasure-filled jar of clay. And if we're in any doubt as to why this teaching is absolutely vital, or if you're wanting to know why this discovery simply must impact and influence your day-to-day life, look at verses 3 and 4. Now, I'm not going to deal with this in any detail, but the reality is, and I don't say this easily, I don't share this lightly, I don't take any pleasure in saying it, but the reality is there are people around us, people we live with, work with, socialize with, share this planet with, who are perishing. And we kind of need to just allow that thought to sit with us and not rush past it. The people around us are perishing. Unbelievers, as Paul describes them, and their minds have been blinded by the God of this age. And so they cannot see the light of the gospel. And God doesn't have a plan B. And he calls us to shine for him. We carry this treasure around with us. We need to share it. We need to let it transmit from our lives. Church, you are treasure-filled jars of clay. What a phenomenal privilege. What an awesome responsibility. Secondly, this might be a bit of a surprise. You are motivated to serve by fear and love. And it's these two very seemingly different and contrasting emotions and feelings and attitudes that should spark, or sh- that should spark you to serve God. Now, some people may struggle with what I'm about to say. But these things should influence your priorities. They should influence your lifestyle. In chapter 5, verse 9, Paul clarifies your goal as a Christian. He says it's our goal to please God. We are meant to be God-pleasers. We are to live, if you like, for an audience of one. But what exactly feeds or motivates that desire? Well, as you read verses 10 through to 15, I think you will discover it's fear and love. Now, let me start with the fear dimension. See, in verse 11, Paul says, we know what it is to fear the Lord. And that knowledge is absolutely vital to possess, and every Christian should have it. A fear of God. But look at what instills this fear. Verse 10. It's the prospect and reality of an inescapable future event. Paul says, and he's writing to Christians. For we must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive what is due them for things done in the body, whether good or bad. You see, one day, someday, you and I are going to stand before God as Christians. And although our ultimate fate is not at stake, we will be judged on the way we've lived this life. And we're going to have to account for it. And various other parts of scripture amplify that teaching. But for Paul, it's that recognition that creates an appropriate fear. A reverential awe, a respect, of a sense of accountability. And so in verse 11 he says, since then, in other words, in light of this, I know what it means to fear God. And I'll be really honest with you, but I don't know if I do have that. I don't know if I really carry that around with me. That actual sense of a fear of God that's instilled because I know that one day I'm going to stand before him. A Christian, I believe, is someone who takes the reality of their judgment seriously. Who readily accepts, just to quote verse 11 from the message, it's no light thing to know that we'll all one day stand in the place of judgment. It's a healthy fear of God and his judgment that should motivate us to serve. And if we've somehow lost that motivating fear, then I pray to God we'll discover it again. But Paul goes on, because you kind of need to hang, hold these in tension, and, and it is quite a challenge to hold these in tension. But he goes on to identify his and our second motivating factor. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. You see, it's the incredible and amazing love of Jesus, which was so, in, so expressed in his cross that encourages us and forces us to serve. So here's what he writes. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died, therefore all died, and he died for all. So it's this sacrificial death of Jesus. It's that love. It's that active love. That demonstrated love that actually should compel us, force us, Push us, urge us to serve. And so church, you're motivated to serve by fear. Instilled by the reality and prospect of a future event, you're motivated to serve by love expressed by the reality of a past event. And both of those should influence your life in the present. Fueled by fear compelled by love third description another familiar one many of us will recognize it it's in verse 17 there chapter 5 you are new creations in christ and that little phrase in christ was one of paul's favorites it it appears something like 88 times in the new testament and on most of those occasions it's paul who uses it And his intention in using it time and time again was to explain to people and express their vital union with Jesus. You see, for Paul, to be a Christian meant to be in Christ. And that is possible again only because of the cross. Look at verse 14 again. 
says that one died for all, that's Jesus, but therefore, this is hard to understand, all died. All died. In other words, we all died in Christ. But just as in the same way that then Jesus was raised to life again, it means that we can experience and know a brand new life. We can become new creations in Christ. That then becomes our identity. That is who you are this morning. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. Now, what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? Well, actually, the Bible, or particularly the New Testament specifically, goes on then to talk about what it means to be in Christ. And I know I've shown you a list like this before. Not this one, but a list like this before. But I'm not sure you can ever see it enough, hear it enough, or know it enough. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, a new creation in Christ, these 20, and it's not an exhaustive list, truths are true about you. And so what I want you to do, because if we believe all scriptures God breathed, then I just want you to inhale this. Just inhale it. We are made alive to God in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. We are set free in Christ. We cannot be separated from God's love in Christ. We are approved by God in Christ. We are sanctified, we are set apart, we are made holy in Christ. We experience God's grace in Christ. God chose us in Christ. We are reconciled to God in Christ. We are children of God in Christ. We are all one in Christ. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are raised to heavenly places in Christ. We are created for good works in Christ. We have been brought near to God in Christ. We partake of God's promises in Christ. We have been forgiven in Christ. Our hearts and our minds are guarded by God's peace in Christ. We are complete in Christ. And if you're a new creation in Christ this morning, then every single one of those statements is true of you. You may not feel like it, and you see, this is the problem. It's not how I feel. It's not how you feel this morning. But you know, if you based your faith and your feelings, you're stuffed. To coin a biblical phrase. <laughs> you, you, you really are. You've got to know that it's not about how you feel. It's about what's true of you. And what's true of you is this. And so church, you're new creations in Christ. And these 20 truths, and many like them, are true of you. And if you want the references to those, please speak to me afterwards. Final two, nearly done. Fourth is found in verse 19, where it says that God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Church, you are messengers of reconciliation. And reconciliation is required whenever there's been a breakdown in relationship. And by far the most critical dysfunctional relationship that can ever exist is between a human being and his or her creator. And the Bible is very explicit regarding the cause of that breakdown and that alienation. It's sin. 
But as you can see from these verses, God has done something about it. Look at verse 18. It says that God has actually reconciled uh, himself to or us to himself through Christ. How? Verse 19. And this is incredible. By not counting people's sins against them. By not counting your sins against them. And how can he do that? Because surely if we've messed up, surely if we've offended a holy God, as we all have, then our sins are stacked up against us. What about justice? We deserve to face up to our sins. Look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for you. You see, reconciliation can only occur if the one who has been offended is willing to forgive. And incredibly and thankfully, God is. But that forgiveness really cost him. All my sin, all your sin on him was laid. Do I fully get that? No, I don't. How does that work? How does that work? How can one person take the sin of the world on himself? Don't understand that. All the things I've ever done wrong, do wrong, will do wrong, and all the things like ways for you and this entire world. How does one person do that? But somehow, and it's the only answer I can give, somehow Jesus had the infinite capacity to absorb the judgment of God for every sin. And therefore, as a result, forgiveness is available, reconciliation is possible with God, and therefore you can be reconnected to the relationship you were created to enjoy. And then, here's the thing, that message of reconciliation has been given to you. Again, we're back to this idea, God's got no plan B. That message of reconciliation, where he goes on to say, be reconciled to God. How do people know they need to be reconciled to God? Well, we've got to share it with them. We've got to talk about this. We are messengers of reconciliation. Yes, we need to be reconciled to one another, but you know something, unless we're reconciled to God, actually that's really hard to be reconciled to one another. But that's who we are. God's given us this ministry, this message of reconciliation. And in fact, it goes further, and this is the last one, then I'm done. You are Christ's ambassadors. Verse 20. In other words, you've been given the full power to speak on behalf of Jesus. In fact, according to the second half of verse 20, God makes his appeal through us to your family and to your friends and to your colleagues. That's how God makes his appeal. Through you. And as we leave here this morning and exit those doors, we carry with us this message of reconciliation that we simply must share with others. But there's another dimension to an ambassador, which is brought out in that little graphic. They represent, which is one of the reasons certain biblical or Bible translations use the phrase, rather than we are Christ's ambassadors, they actually say we are Christ's representatives. And therefore, again, as we go from here this week, we represent Jesus. And here's the scary thing. Most people in our world today, in our society today, will judge Jesus on the basis of us. And how we live. And how we speak. And the attitudes we have. That's how most people, because we are his representatives. That's what Paul says. You represent Jesus. 
It's a daunting task. So, there are five realities of each Christian here this morning. You are treasure-filled jars of clay. You are motivated to serve by fear and love. You're fueled by fear, compelled by love. You're new creations in Christ. You're messengers of reconciliation. You're Christ's ambassadors. And may we take these and live in light of them to the glory of God. And if you are here this morning, and you're not quite sure if you're a Christian or not, and so you're not quite sure if these things are true of you or not, can I encourage you to speak to someone? There are people here who would love to pray with anyone about anything. And if you would like anyone to pray with you after the service, then please just ask us and would love to do that.